Welcome to Mongo Spaces. On Fridays, where we have discussions around what's happening in the markets and in the economy and in the global world that we live in uh, presently, especially in the lines of business. Today, we want to analyze bank earnings, especially for the first half of the year. Usually, what happens is most banks have a financial year that ends in December, and midway between that is usually June. And after that, they have two months within which to report their earnings. So most banks choose to report in August. And now we are at the tail end of August. That was two days ago. We've already done with August. And so they had to report all their earnings. So this week, what we do is just dive deep into bank earnings and just try to understand how they perform and all. With me here today is Ronak and Solomon. I would want them to introduce themselves first and say what they do day to day. And then after that, we can get into their earnings themselves. I'll start with Ronak and then with Solomon. Thank you. Thank you, Mukara. Thanks for having me this evening to speak on the bank's earnings. My name is Ronak Gadia. I'm an equity analyst. I currently work for EFG Hermes. At EFG, I work in the research department looking at frontier banks. In terms of background, I'm originally from Kenya, but currently living in the diaspora. And yeah, I've been following the Kenyan banks for now close to almost 20 years. Karimu Ronak Solomon. Thanks, thanks, Eric. I'm Solomon Karioti, research analyst at AIB Axis Africa. It's one of the leading stock brokers here based in Europe. Who, on my day-to-day basis, I basically cover the NFC in terms of the equities and the fixed income. And majorly have a set of companies that I cover. And I also have a lot of interactions with the retail clients, getting to structure their portfolios, getting to help them understand the market and guiding them through the investment process. In terms of the background, degree in economics and finance, CPA, CFA continuing, and previously worked for a buy-side asset manager as an investment analyst. All right. So perhaps before we get into earnings themselves, I would want to know what's your journey to becoming an investment analyst? What's your route to having become an analyst? Maybe I'll start with Ronak and then Solomon. I read a little bit about yourself and how you ended up being an analyst. Did you always want to be one? Well, my undergraduate was in actual science, but when I came back to Kenya, I decided to branch more out into finance and given my sort of numeracy skills, I ended up applying for a research-based role at uh, what was then CFC Financial Services. And uh, luckily for me, they accepted my application. And yeah, since then, just been within the research department from CFC to African Alliance to Exotics and now uh, EFG Hermes. All right. Solomon, what has been your journey like? Well, my journey is not as long as Ronald's. It started a few years ago, around six years ago. But before then, when I left high school, I wanted to be a lawyer, but couldn't make the cut in terms of the points. So I found myself in an economics class. Then I got to fall in love with the subjects, what you are learning, did a CP along the way. And by the time I was in fourth year, I was really keen to work in the investment banking and stock brokerage. But that didn't happen until around five years later. But in between then, I started off in private world as a financial advisor. For around three years, then changed departments in the same firm to investment analysis, starting from internship all the way to being an investment analyst, mostly covering portfolios on equities, fixed income, and also bit some to bit of private equity monitoring. Yeah, along the way. Basically, that has been my journey. It has been a journey of learning. And uh, it's a journey of uh, resilience because some of the moments before transitioning, I really had a hard time convincing my bosses that I need to move from private roles to the investment department. So I really put in a word for myself and I had to go back to start internship after almost being a team leader. 
All right. So we'll get to back to that maybe a little bit later in terms of stories. So let's start with bank earnings. For someone who's new, how do the financial statements of banks differ from the, the normal kind of companies that people follow? So maybe we could start with Ronak. Maybe you can give us a little bit. How does the balance sheet, especially for banks, the balance sheet is very important. How does that look like for a typical bank? How do they finance themselves? What's on the asset side? What's on the liability side? And what's on the equity side? So maybe you can give us a, a little bit brief on how the financial statements look like. Sure. Like you mentioned, I guess the key for banks' financials is the balance sheet. The way I look at the balance sheet for banks, you know, if you're sort of comparing them to what, to a non-bank, the balance sheet for a bank is essentially uh, the raw materials. You know, this is what they use to generate the revenues and profits on the P&L side. Now, in terms of sort of categorizing the raw materials, obviously balance sheets, assets and liabilities on the asset side. Well, again, the way I look at most uh, frontier banks, including Kenyan banks, is they're mostly liability driven. So what I mean by that is most banks across Africa and across most of the frontier economies, what they try and what their business models entail is to try and grow their deposit base. Traditionally, as we know, the deposit base was, well, growth was driven by their sort of legacy physical branch network. That's what I would say the primary aim is to grow their deposit base. And then once the deposit base grows, they try and figure out what to do with those deposits on the asset side. So looking at it from the assets perspective, banks obviously are in the business of lending intermediation. So the primary asset for any bank should be private sector loans. Obviously that's not the case in many countries where banks make a lot of money from government securities, but at least in Kenya, the primary asset is private sector loans. And then whatever is left is sort of equally divided between cash equivalents to meet the regulatory liquidity requirements and treasuries or government securities before they optimize the balance sheet from the asset side. Uh, the other final, I guess, key for balance sheet is capital and equity. Obviously banks being quite important because of their interaction with the general public, banks are required to meet minimum capital requirements. And that's where the capital comes in. Again, in Canadian banks, capital requirements about a billion shillings. And apart from that, they're required to maintain a minimum capital adequacy ratios by the central bank. So yeah, that's the raw materials. And then I guess from that, the banks try and generate revenues through multiple ways, either by earning interest revenues and top it up by other revenue sources like fee income, trading income, et cetera, to try and generate revenues and maximize profits. So, yeah, I think that sums it up really well. So maybe Solomon, you can add on how exactly do banks make money at the end of the day? Uh, yes. Yeah, so if, if you look at the books of banks or let's start with the balance sheet, it's not the normal balance sheet that we learned in school, but you have these assets, inventories, the liabilities, all that. So the banks usually have a special kind of structure because if you go to a bank's balance sheet, you find a loan is an asset and the deposits that you are giving them liabilities. So for a bank to remain profitable, then they have to balance between the yields they are getting from the loans and the cost they are incurring to keep your deposits. In terms of making money, there are two main methods of making money. This is what we call interest income and non-interest income. The interest income is whereby, as you know, the main aim of a bank is to lend to people. So once you walk into your bank and you take up a loan and pay up the interest, 
it counters part of the revenue for the bank. Alternatively, they could take some of the money that they have and give it to the government in form of treasury bills and treasury bonds, and they would get coupons and the bonds also get some form of capital appreciation. So that's another method in which you can make money in terms of interest. Banks also usually lend to one another. You find they have placements locally and abroad. You're also getting some interest from that placement. So that is the interest income aspect of it. Then the other non-interest aspect is anytime uh, they give you what you call bank charges. So when you're taking up your loan, you'll find the bank is giving you negotiation fees, transaction fees, and all those fees that are deducted upfront before you get your loan. Those ones go to the non-interest bit of it. And then you also find for some banks, some of the digital loans for some time have been recognized as non-interest income, but you recently have seen a shift in that by they're recognizing the digital loans as interest income because they are tied to interest. And then a bank also deals with forex trading. So you find that for those who do maybe who are paid in dollars or international currency, sometimes you have to call your bank and tell them I want the best rate they can give you. And you also find that the rate they're giving you is different from what is quoted in the CDK. So those we call arbitrage opportunities, the differences between what is quoted by the CBK and uh, what they are trading you or what they are exchanging for you at, that is some of the revenue that they usually get. Alternatively, and in recent times, we have seen banks do what we call of balance sheet financing or what we call trade financing. So there's a lot of uh, trading happening between Kenya and other regional areas. And some of these large banks, equity and PCB have been into that what we call trade financing or of balance sheet financing. And that also comes in as part of non-interest income. So in terms of banks making money, there are two large sources of income is interest income and non-interest income. So that's how they make money. Thank you so much. Uh, um, Makaya, if you ask me in simple words, banks make money by taking your money and charging you for it. That's a hard way yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's, that's correct. Yes. Well, I think the basic stuff is we could lend this money to each other, but we choose to lend it to a bank and then the bank has to take the risk of lending it to someone else. And then of course they charge you for it. Uh, but I wanted to perhaps uh, tell our listeners that we we're just discussing banks and all. On the Twitter space up there, you can see a thread we did on the bank's earnings and then another one, a set of financials from Equity Bank. So you can have a look at them and perhaps look at how the interest income, the different parts of the balance sheet. You can look at a typical balance sheet on how it looks like. A quick question has come in from Moses again. He's asking, then let's move to the equity side. So there's tier one capital, tier two capital. What is that usually and how does that impact how you analyze banks? You can jump in, AW. Uh, sure. Tier one capital is essentially the long-term permanent capital injected by the owners of the company, i.e. the shareholders. Typically, well, uh, what that means is they are, they rank the lowest in terms of the risk scale. So if the bank were to be wound down or go through administration, the central bank or the administrator would typically pay off all the other creditors first before then paying the balance to the tier one capital holders or the shareholders. So that's the permanent capital in the bank. And like I said, it's probably the most risky form of capital. And then tier two typically entails, I mean, it could include some other reserves as well, but typically just that includes subordinated 
debt. What that means is just non-permanent debt capital, which supplements the tier one capital base of, of a bank. Uh, again, in terms of riskiness, it is less risky than tier one capital in that subordinated debt holders, subordinated capital holders would typically get paid before tier one capital holders. But at the same time, it also means they are subordinated, which means that senior creditor holders or other creditors of the bank would get paid first in the case of an administration before those capital holders get paid. To try and ensure that banks are not taking too much risk, i.e. they're not over-reliant on tier two capital because that is non-permanent. And as we've seen, that can create issues as we saw during the global financial crisis. So try and prevent that from happening. Regulators across many jurisdictions try and limit the amount of tier two capital that a bank can withhold. So for example, in Nigeria, tier two capital can be a maximum of 25% of total capital. So essentially the ratio of tier two to tier one is one to three. Good stuff. Solomon, now when I give you the financials of a bank, what are the key aspects of the financials that you pay attention to very quickly once you get it in your hands? So unlike most investors who I've talked to and who I've interacted with, most people rush to the profits. And I feel like that is one of the biggest mistakes that some of our investors have made in the market by first looking at profits. Because anybody can make profits. And for me, I don't really consider profit as the key indicator. So once I'm sitting in my desk and I see an email from NSC, uh, NSC trading with maybe financials for a company like, let's say, Cooperative Bank. So once I download the whole PDF document, the first thing I look at is the growth in revenues. And more specifically, I like to know the growth in revenues from loans, growth in revenues from government deposits. And I also like to know the interest expense, the change in that. And I also like to see how the unfunded income is growing. On the other side of the balance sheet, I like to first look at the loans. How has it grown? I also like to look at the deposits, how they've grown. And I also like to look at the allocations to government securities, how they change because they kind of tend to inform you the, the risk appetite of the bank. Yeah, mostly those are the items I first look up to. And then, of course, I have to go to the other disclosures. I look at the non-performing loans. That's the asset quality. And then I also look at the ratios, the key ratios there. Now the tier one and tier two capital ratios, the co-capital. And I also tend to look at the liquidity ratios just to see the strength of the bank. Now with that kind of ground, now I think we can get into the banks. You attended the KCP meeting and I saw you asking questions a lot about NPL performing. So I want to start on that, like what's your concern around KCB and the non-performing loans that they have? Yeah, sure. And I would mention that this is not particularly a KCB issue. Even at the sector level, we're seeing some pretty elevated NPL numbers and cost of risk, which doesn't really tally with what the Kenya National Bureau of Statistics is telling us with regards to the macro situation in Kenya, because banks typically are a reflection of macroeconomic activity. When the economy is strong, banks perform well, the asset quality is strong and vice versa when the economy is weak, as we saw during the COVID crisis. But in Kenya, we're seeing a bit of a dislocation in particularly, you asked about KCP, you saw their NPL ratio increase around 21 and a half percent pretty significant increase on a Q&Q basis and on a year-on-year -year basis. And that is very high. And that is concerning for a couple of reasons. Firstly, like I mentioned, 
a significant increase on a year-on-year basis, on a Q&Q basis, which, like I said, doesn't tally with what we're seeing on the ground in terms of economic activity. And the second point is, in absolute terms, that number is extremely high. 21.5% means one shilling out of every five that the bank has lent out is non-performing. And that obviously is extremely high. To add to that, as a result of that increase, obviously the bank's NPL cover has dropped. So when you look at it from a sort of net NPLs to capital ratios, how much of their NPLs are unprovisioned for as a percentage of capital net numbers has also increased quite significantly. And that's a bit of a concern. I guess the, the final point I would make there, like I said, this is more from a wider Kenyan economy perspective is KCB, as we know, is the largest bank in Kenya. Their assets, deposits, loans, market is anywhere between 18 to 20%. And if the largest, most systemically important bank in Kenya has an NPL ratio more than 20%. And that's a concern, not just for KCB, but the Kenyan banking sector and the Kenyan economy in general. With that being said, you know, post the results, obviously there's been more communication from the CEO of the bank, and it does seem like the second quarter, the NPLs were a bit elevated because of delayed government payments, because of delayed resolution of some NPLs that they've been trying to resolve and restructure. And it seems like he's pretty confident that by the end of the year, they can bring that number down by 17%, which is still quite high, but at least it starts to trend in the right direction. What's a good NPL ratio for the banks that you follow? And then also in terms of the people who are new to maybe banks and all, how exactly does a bank go from reporting earnings and then in terms of provisioning and then finally in terms of declaring something as non-performing? And then how does that go back if it recovers some of the money there? So perhaps you can give us a bit of context there. Maybe you can start, Ronak, and then Solomon can put jumping in. Sure. So in terms of the normal NPL, I mean, it really just depends on how mature the market is. Typically, markets that are more mature, that have higher penetration rates, the banks have a lot of more information on the underlying borrowers, and so they're able to underwrite risks more efficiently. Likewise, the other factor that comes into play is what type of exposure they have. Typically, retail exposures are more risky and corporate exposures. So banking sectors or banks that have more retail exposure should typically have higher uh, NPLs uh, and, and loan loss uh, provisions. That being said, amongst the numerous banks that we cover, I would say broadly the NPL ratio is less than 5%. And the amount of provisions that banks make as a percentage of their gross loans or cost of risk is typically less than 1%. So Indian banks, ACB in particular, have really been the outliers standing out, not just this year, but I would say consistently since 2017. Since then, the sector-wide NPL ratio has been about 10%, which speaking to, you know, the investors that I speak is somewhat of a concern. Now, the interaction between NPLs and earnings. So typically when a loan non-performs, you know, the borrower defaults. The bank has to make what we call provisions on that, i.e. the fact that they're not going to recover that loan means they have to set aside some of their revenue or earnings to offset that loss. So that's what we call loan loss provisions, which go through the PNL. And likewise, once a bank sets aside its provisions and thereafter, if they do make a recovery, 
either by sale of collateral or restructuring the portfolio or for whatever reason, the loan and the borrower starts paying again. And again, you see that in the form of recoveries, again, going through the PNL. Now, the net effect between the two in terms of provisions, this recoveries is what we call net provisions. And the way to quantify that or compare that across banks is you look at the net provisions, essentially gross loans, which as I referenced earlier, is what we call the cost of risk. And typically, uh, a, a low cost of risk means a bank is more efficient in underwriting risks and a high cost of risk means they're poor at underwriting. Before uh, I let Solomon jump in there, I want to double click on that, especially when it comes to KCB. They specifically talk about, I think, 9 to 16 loans that actually are driving a huge percentage of that NPL. So I wanted to understand a bit, like, is that something that would be a concern in terms of that constituted risk among uh, some few lenders who actually are a significant part of that non-performing loan? Would that be a concern to you as an analyst? No, no, I, I'd say maybe the opposite. I mean, the, the fact that it's just concentrated to a few borrowers means that they don't have a widespread systemic issue. It doesn't suggest that their, their risk management practices are widely poor. It just means that some of the loans that they give some of those big corporates, those have underperformed and th those may be due to specific reasons rather than for underwriting by KCB. So KCB's case, we know they do have exposure to some of the state-owned entities, which obviously have performed poorly for one reason or the other, or the other over the last five to 10 years. So like I said, it suggests that they don't have a wide systemic issue. The other sort of, you'd say positive out of that is the fact that in terms of remedial action. It's easier to sort of follow up with, well, like I said, 15 to 17 borrowers rather than 10 to 20,000 borrowers who may have underperformed. You can have much more closer interactions with them, keep a closer eye on their cash flows, and on the back of that, take appropriate remedial actions, which might not be that easy if you had a lot more default risk. Okay. Solomon, anything to add in terms of provisioning, NPLs, and perhaps a second? Talk about the rest of the other banks, apart from KCB, what are the trends that you're looking at there and what are you seeing? Uh, okay. So in terms of provisioning, maybe for the listeners who might want a further clarification, it's that you go and take a loan from the bank, maybe for your small business, but down the line, you're not able to service the loan. So let's say you're taking a million shilling. Your bank, the point whereby they're giving you the loan, they have to do a credit assessment. I know these are good borrowers, so we're going to give them the loan. But then you've come back and said, I cannot service my loan. And for most banks, it takes around three to six months. If you're not able to service, then it's taken a step further, closer to non-performing. So the bank will then provision for, in this case, I'm assuming the loan was unsecured. So they're going to provision for maybe after renegotiation with yourself, or in the case whereby it was secured, then they can look at the collateral that you had pledged, how much they can get from it. So at that point whereby the bank is giving you the loan, they have to provision for a possibility that you might not pay the loan. And as we have observed in the half year results, you find that most banks, uh, their gross NPS um, have increased, but then you find that the provisioning has gone down the same way the loan book has increased. So you might find that the kind of lending they have done is not the kind of the risky borrowing or risky lending that you would maybe need them to provision more. You also find that if you look at the provisions that were there for most of the banks is that they have reduced them. And you also find that some have increased them. In this case, this is the example of increasing. Some of them have increased them. And you find that they have increased them because the loans they have given are also tied to some form of risk. 
So at that point, then the bank will come in and do a provision for the loan that they have given you. So in terms of the industry trends, apart from KCB, which was an outlier, and maybe to point out is that their whole NPL is around 173 billion. And if you look at the bank, they recently proposed to acquire in DRC uh, in terms of the asset size is around 140, 160 billion converted to Kenyan shillings. So their NPLs are larger than the bank they are trying to acquire in DRC. And the NPLs alone are larger than some of tier two and tier three banks that we have in Kenya. So that is the magnitude of the NPLs that we have in KCB. And then if you look at it, that some of those NPLs were largely driven by a national bank, which had around 34%. The NPL ratio there is around 34%. We have South Sudan at 23 and surprisingly Kenya at 22.5, KCB Bank Kenya. So it was now that point of concern. And I think that's where the 9 to 16 risky borrowers are coming in. From where we see it, we see it as an exposure to government suppliers because Historically, KCB has done a lot of business with government suppliers. And so in the papers recently, we saw that there are around half a trillion of unpaid debts. And we suspect that some of it could be tied to the high-end bills that we are seeing in KCB. But if you look at the industry, we had seen some bit of improvement, mostly with the other large lenders. The most notable one was NCBA, which improved from around 16.6 to around 13.5% in terms of NPL ratio. That is the non-performing loans compared to the average loans that they have. Then there was also an improvement that we observed from equity, which improved from around 11.3. So the lesser number you have, the better for you. So equity moved from 11 point, around 0.4 to around 8.8. And then the best bank in terms of asset quality in the market at the moment for observations was APSA which has the lowest non-performing NPL ratio at around 7.1%. So for APSA, and from my own assessment is that they are quite conservative in terms of how and who they are lending to. And from our conversations with them is that they have a targeted kind of lending. They are not really looking to sell out to the masses. It's not like they have a target market and for them, they are comfortable lending to that target market that they have. Good stuff. Ronak, I think you... Top up? No, no, that's a good summary. Like I said, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, there's a lot of spotlight on KCB. Obviously, they're the market leader and they have, they reported a very high uh, NPL ratio, but this isn't a KCB specific issue. Like I said, sector wide, you're seeing an NPL ratio of 15%, which is extremely high. Even if you look at it from a cost of risk perspective, you know, provisions of sort of gross loans. Most banks, with the exception of equity and standard chartered, are still reporting a cost of risk of 2%. So that continues to baffle me. That continues to remain a concern for foreign investors. Almost two or let's say three years after COVID, why are the banks reporting such very high NPL numbers? It does seem like, you know, historically the banks were under-reporting their NPLs and uh, so gradually, they are starting to recognize those NPLs, but it raises the question in terms of what is the scale of the problem. And I, in my opinion, I think the central bank needs to come out a bit more clear on this situation in terms of what is the size of the problem and when it's under control. All right. Now, we are almost at the half of our allocated time to the spaces. As well, I would want to open up the spaces a bit. So if you have questions, you can just forward them to us and then you can be able to analyze them. 
So a quick one which has come in is about the standard growth in terms of their loans and advances. So if I look at the loans and advances, for standard for H1, it's actually down, I uh, think 1.3%. And if you look at 2021 compared to 2020, it's still down like 3%. Is there a concern around standard and lending? Are they being cautious or what's the issue around that? Uh, okay, so for standard and from uh, my conversation with management with them, is that APSA into some level standing for them, they are comfortable with the kind of uh, customers you have. They're not as aggressive as maybe an equity or an NCPA or a KCP. And uh, for them, if you look at standard in terms of allocations to government, in terms of actually even the loan to deposit, they're actually the lowest. If you look at the ratio of the loans they have compared to the deposit, they are the lowest at around 45% compared to the rest of the peers who are in the above the 70s and some of them are in the 90s. So for them, I find them to be quite conservative in terms of lending, despite there being some opportunities in the market. An example is digital lending. They are quite late entrance into that space. For Stanchat, the way I look at them for now, they are really focused on growing their asset management and wealth management, financial markets and wealth management side. Because if you look at it, it has been shifting the revenue mix to close to 50-50 and much of it is coming from the financial markets and wealth management. I feel like they're watching the market in terms of how they're going to lend. Maybe they are looking for some bit of stability to come in maybe uh, in the next uh, financial year and they'll resume lending. But for now, they are quite conservative. Most of their allocations in terms of assets, they are moving them to government securities. I agree. I mean, it seems some of have been conservative, not just this year, but they've been conservative for a while. That could be for two reasons. As we know, they have a multinational parent company and maybe they're just not comfortable with taking increasing risk in Kenya. And like Solomon mentioned, if you look at Sanchat's growth, historically, it's been quite lumpy and that's because of the target market, the cage of two. Typically, when you see a strong investment cycle by corporates, you see big loan growth coming through at Sanchat because they're one of the key lenders that, uh, within a space. So... Their growth tends to be a bit more lumpy. And maybe if we continue to see continued strong recovery into next year, you'll start to see growth coming through on the balance sheet. The other point from a growth perspective is yes, stand chart is lagging slightly right now, but we're only starting to see loan growth accelerate across the sector. You know, since the introduction of rate caps back in 2015, loan growth has largely been in the single digits. And only from the first quarter of this year, We've started to see loan growth pick up to the high in the single digits or now even in the double digits. So they're lagging, but it's not like they've been lagging for a while. And the final point there is we could quite easily flip the question in that, yes, Tanchat is not growing, but maybe we should even question the banks that are really growing quite aggressively. Some of the banks, their loan books have suddenly started growing by 15 to 20%. And in an environment where the shilling has come under a lot of pressure, inflation is at a multi-hour high, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty about the elections and, and politics. Global factors still continue to play a part. Oil prices still uh, at a very high levels. You should be questioning the aggressiveness of some of these banks lending in this environment. You could have a scenario where the macro situation comes under quite a lot of pressure and therefore all the loan growth that banks are achieving would come under a lot of pressure. So I guess this question works both ways. Why is Stanchard's loan growth so low or why is Stanchard just being more prudent than everybody else? Good question. One question that I wanted to also ask about the lending practices of the company, uh, the 
banks in Kenya, they're pretty aggressive in expanding across the region. Equity at KCB with the race in terms of total assets, uh, they beat like the one, 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 one trillion uh, Kenya shillings in terms of the asset base. And now they're racing, like equity says they want to triple their balance sheet by 2025. I think there's, there's an article on Bloomberg on that. How do you view the banks and how they're expanding across the region? Does it worry you that maybe entering into an area like DRC may require them to have higher provisions or at least to be more cautious? Or are you also worried in terms of their race to become the bank with the largest in terms of asset base that they're going to also compromise a bit on quality of the assets that they're bringing on board? So perhaps you can start with uh, Solomon and then uh, Rona can actually then weigh in. Yes. So, so in terms of growth, we have seen a lot of growth in the much lenders in Kenya has not been organic, we call it inorganic growth. Has been growth through consolidations into the neighboring markets. Yeah, best example is KCB and equity. So KCB just last year completed the acquisition of BPR in Rwanda to match with KCB Rwanda to form an even bigger entity. And then we so saw last month them saying that they are going to, or they're eyeing the DRC market through acquisition of a trust merchant bank. So for DRC, the way I look at it is one market that in terms of uh, revenue mix, they are mostly are concentrated on non-funded income. So in terms of risk, I don't feel like they're going to take up much risk for DRC for now, even though the market remains to be quite risky because unlike Kenya, DRC doesn't have an established CRB. So that makes it a little bit challenging in terms of raising your loans and the kind of asset quality that you're going to take up. So that could be a key challenge in terms of the type and the quality of assets are going to take up. But then again, DRC also provides some good opportunities. I'm looking at equities, trade missions they have been organizing since they joined or since they started operations in DRC. So I feel like they've started to pay off because if you look at half one, equity made around, I think, 2.6 billion in trade finance revenue. With, I think, trade finance loans of 13, it was around 34 billion. And I expect KCB is following the same, they're rather copying equity in terms of that. Also, if you look at the strategic position of KCB's acquisition, that is TMB, they are mainly located in Lubumbashi, which is to the southeastern part of DRC, which is mainly a mining region. So maybe I'm looking at it, trying to target the lending to the mining sector and also some bit of trade finance on that. So I feel like DRC is a mixture of opportunities. I would say high risk, high reward, because it's a market of uncertainties. So it could prove to be a very good investment and it could also be a disappointing one, mostly because of the uncertainty surrounding the market. There's a lot of unknowns there. And also there are some regions that usually have a lot of conflict. So it's up to both equity and KCB to know how to navigate those parts. All right. So then uh, in terms of expansion, Ronak, do you have something to add there? Yeah, sure. I think it makes a lot of sense to expand outside of Kenya. Because as we saw in 2016, when rate caps were introduced and the margins of all these banks came under pressure, uh, suddenly there was a big impact on profitability. So from a diversification perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned that this expansion is a recent thing. I'd sort of like to defer. If you look at the expansion strategy, you know, equity banks, first expansion outside Kenya, I think was in 2008 when they 
acquired by National Microfinance of uh, Bank of Uganda or something. So they've been expanding to uh, outside of Kenya for more than 10 years now. Obviously, it's gained more momentum in the last five or six years, again, on the back of the rate cap introduction in, in Kenya. They started focusing a bit more on the non-Kenyan subsidiaries. So they've been outside of Kenya for a while now. And gradually, uh, I would say management has gradually gotten their execution right. If you look at their performance five, six years ago, these were largely subscale operations, earning very low ROEs. But in the last three or four years, they've really managed to improve that. And if you look at their performance now, they're achieving plus 20% ROEs in Uganda, Rwanda, South Sudan. And like Solomon mentioned, even the DRC, the ROE in DRC has meaningfully improved over the last 12 or 18 months. So from their perspective, their execution is, is well, and I think investors should be relatively positive on their expansion strategy. On the flip side for KCB, I still think they have some work to do. Like equity, they have been expanding outside of Kenya for a while now. In fact, they expanded outside Kenya much earlier than equity as well. Their first operations in outside Kenya, I think it was in Tanzania almost uh, 20 years ago. And if you look at their performance, it's been relatively mixed in terms of ROEs. The ROEs for KCB subsidiaries outside of Kenya are still in the low teens. The new CEO and his team, I think, have some work to do in terms of trying to scale up the operations and trying to improve their profitability. And then we come to DRC where they've made an acquisition recently. Again, my opinion of that is yes, obviously we're seeing uh, equity achieve in DRC and given the growth opportunities that Solomon mentioned, it makes sense to expand into DRC, but at the same time, it does seem like they are paying uh, over the odds. If you look at the expansion multiple they're paying. Uh, they want to acquire TMB at 1.49 times book value. From the historical financials of a TMB, the ROE has been around 10% or less. So they're paying 1.49 times book for a bank with a 10% ROE. When you compare that to KCB's on valuation, KCB currently trades at 0.7 times. And as we know, that it did generate ROEs of more than 20%. If you look at the acquisition multiple paid by equity about two years ago for BCPC, it was around 0.9 times book value. Uh, and they acquired a, a much larger bank with a slightly higher profitability. So, uh, yes, it, it makes sense for KCB to expand there, but I think they're paying a very high premium to acquire that asset and that reduces the attractiveness of that expansion, in my opinion. Fascinating takes. So there are a couple of questions that are coming in and perhaps Rona, I'll come back to you to give me a bit of a regional perspective on how banks are doing. And before that, I just want to see a couple of questions from Tony. Tony is a regular listener. He's, he's saying he heard, I think Solomon uh, talking about APSA being a conservative bank. I don't know if Solomon or Ronak. But when he looks at the loan to deposit ratio, he says it's one of the highest in the big banks. Is that paradoxical or how is APSA conservative yet it has a high loan to deposit ratio. But yes, I, I'm, I'm the one who said that. <laughs> from recent engagement with management, from what I got is that the loan growth has not been the organic loan growth that they have lent to people. From the way I look at it is that they, they had around 65 billion in restructured COVID loans. And some of those loans have been normalized and coming back to the balance sheet as kind of new loans that have been issued. So that then also comes in as a factor for some of the growth you're also seeing. And if you look at them in terms of the conservativeness, even for yourself going to apply for a loan at APSA, they are a little bit keen on who they are lending to. That's why you find that 
their NPLs are low and their loan to deposit ratios are high. Okay. Back to Ronak. Can you give us a region of flavor in terms of banks? Since you deal with frontier markets, how are banks across the region doing? What are some of the biggest banks around? How does the rest of the region look like? And how is, let's say, West Africa in terms of banks? And how come they have not made a strong headway into East Africa? Well, just start with your last question. I wouldn't necessarily say that they haven't made headway into East Africa. Gradually, over the last five years, we have seen increasing investments from the Nigerian banks. We saw Guarantee Trust Bank acquire FINA Bank, I think it was five or six years ago. And then we had Access Bank, which has now acquired two Kenyan banks for the last three years. Ecobank GBA have been around. So yeah, we are seeing an uptick of investments from West African banks. We've also seen some of the Egyptian banks come into the Kenyan space. Maybe as you know, a small likely idea still. In terms of performance within our space, the most interesting space right now from an East Africa perspective is definitely Tanzania. Tanzania, as we know, during the reign of Magufuli, the country as in general went through pretty significant structural reforms. And as I mentioned earlier, banks are a reflection of the economy. So when those structural reforms are being implemented, the banks are performing pretty poorly. We saw NPL spike, long growth was almost non-existent. Profits were under pressure. But what you see in Tanzania right now is the benefits of the restructuring that Magufuli implemented. If you look at Tanzania right now from a growth perspective, it's probably one of the fastest growing economy in East Africa, got fairly low debt to GDP ratio levels. The inflation seems to be largely under control. So the operating environment right now in Tanzania is much stronger than what we're seeing at least in Kenya. And on the back of that, we're seeing some pretty strong numbers from the two leading banks in Tanzania, CRDD and LMB. We've got at least some numbers, both banks, the talent ships have grown uh, by strong double digits. ROE is now firmly up upwards of uh, 25%, NPL rate is less than 5%. So yeah, Tanzania is doing well. We're also seeing Stanley Pidanda has always been a consistent performer. That continues to remain the case. They continue to earn hourly the 20 to 25%. And obviously, Uganda is one of the is starting to benefit from the oil investments coming through. Likewise, Bank of Kigali, given the robust performance of Rwanda over the last uh, few years, has done relatively well. The day earnings momentum has slowed somewhat in the first half, but if you look at it over the longer term, the earnings have been growing at around 15 20%. The ROEs, we said, dropped around 17% because they did a capital raise three, four years ago, now getting back up to the 20% level. So, originally, yeah, outside of Kenya, I think if you look at the performance of all the major banks, they're all doing relatively well. And from a valuation perspective as well, many of them trading at cheaper multiples compared to the Kenyan counterparts. Looking at it from a wider East Africa perspective, I guess the key banking system that comes into play is Nigeria. In that case, the Nigerian banks profits earnings of the number factor. For the best part of three or four years, and that's largely because in the native environment, they've been extremely uh, Central banks have been implemented for very unethical market policy, and that's how they make it again faster than that. But from that perspective, we're not seeing very strong earnings growth come through. All right, Solomon, there's a question here about lending to government securities, and I know that's an area you pay close attention to. No, lending to government and specifically like banks shifting towards lending a lot more to governments than maybe lending actually to businesses. 
It's a sort of crowding out effect. So Tony is wondering what happens when that dries up, especially in terms of domestic borrowing to some of these banks that are heavily exposed. I know last year, the equity bank CEO was saying that they want to deliberately move away from investing in government securities and reducing that. But they, when you look at some of the investments and how they've gone the past year, they've actually increased. Does it worry you that banks lend are, are more exposed maybe to lending to government than to lending to businesses sometimes? Or at least they are more inclined to do that? I look at it in two ways. But I'll start off with a comment on equity. So despite Dr. Mwangi saying that they're looking to slow down on government securities, if you look at the half-year results, the allocation to government securities increased by around 80% to 365 billion. So for me, it's quite a concern because if you look at equity specifically, they're quite exposed in terms of mark-to-market losses. If you look at the fair value loss, they had the largest, you know, closing at around they said 38 billion, I mean, close around half a year, but they had reduced it by date of reporting August. So for me, I look at it in two ways. One, it's quite concerning that there were a lot of front loading that the banks had done on government debt during the COVID period is coming back to bite them because of the rising yield curve. When the yield curve uh, rises, then the inverse relationship between the price and the yields of bonds then comes back to on the negative in terms of the mark to market valuation of bonds which we have seen many of the banks that have been reporting, have been reporting negative fair value loss on their holdings. And the largest casualty has been equity group. With that now around 10% or 11% loss compared to the total holdings. So when I look at that, then it's a point of concern for me because that I look at it in the sense that it might affect the dividend payout because I'm seeing a situation whereby if equity banks situation doesn't improve, then we might see some little bit of deduction on, on the dividend paid out so to keep on some sort of provisioning for them to cover them in terms of any losses that might come. Tied to that is that most of the exposure for equity group by Kenya government eurobonds, the 2028 and 2032 papers, I would have been more concerned if it was the 2024 paper because I expect the yields for that paper to continue or to stay high because there are some concerns on the government's ability to redeem the paper, given that it's below 24 months in terms of maturity. But then the exposure is in 2028 and 2032 papers largely. And uh, that is another point of concern, you know, given the way the foreign investors perception of the Kenyan market, especially given the current political environment. So if on Monday, then whatever results you're going to get isn't received positively, maybe by the one engine, there are some, you know, skirmishes here and there then you might see the yield come going up again. And whatever result that is announced, let's say I'm looking at the negative being an analysis, then you have to go back to another set of elections. I feel like there's going to be a lot of wrangles in terms of, you know, not being too political is that there might be a case of whereby the players might refuse to take part with another election with the IBC currently at play. So all those political factors surrounding the Kenyan space are quite negative in terms of the yields on Eurobonds and key negative for equity group. Now, looking at it, on the other hand, I sense that most of the banks who are trying to pack their money in government securities as they try and assess the market and see if they can go back to lending. Remember COVID came in 2020, you were supposed to get back in 2021. And then remember now, as you are trying to come back, then the election kicked in. And you know, elections in Kenya is a period of wait and see for most investors. So the best time we can recover maybe if we are to do away with the elections and COVID is maybe from January of next year. So I don't expect much lending. I observe it or I see it as government 
papers being more attractive for banks, actually because they can pack them there. And I also see it as a sense that there has been quite risky, especially given that there was a capping of rates. So that also made sense for lenders to pack their money in government papers. But now since that has gone and what you have right now is the risk-based model, from most of the lenders that we have engaged, they have been approved, but then there's approval and there's implementation. So the ones the CBK approved the risk-based models, then you have to go back to the drawing board and come up with an implementation model that you're going to submit again to CBK so that you can start using the, the your risk-based model. So I think so far, the only bank that has completed all that process is equity. And that is also surprising because I feel like they are now at liberty to lend and I don't see why they would be partnering with their allocations to government securities. You've hit on a couple of points which I wanted to maybe uh, get a feel of. What exactly is the risk-based lending that uh, banks are pursuing? And there's also on one hand, you have banks like Equity Bank, which have received the approval to do the risk-based lending, but they say they are hesitant to actually implement it. Any reason why they're holding back on that? My first suspicion on why they're holding on is maybe the implementation model has not yet been approved. So remember the start bit of getting the approval from CPK and getting the implementation model. So that is my first suspicion on why they are not implementing it. But taking it back to 2016, the capping of rates. So what happened is that the government said that it's a CBR plus 4%. So that means loans were retailing at around 11 to 13, 14%. So that's a very good rate for any borrower. But then what happened is that banks refused, I'll use the word refused loosely, they refused to lend. So they steep credit, but the credit provider is not willing to provide at that rate. Simply because with, with the CBR plus four, that means that if Mokaya is not a good borrower and Solomon is a good borrower, then we're all getting the loan at the same rate. And for most banks, they found that to be unfair and, and it was not a proper representation of the of risk assessment for their loans. So what happened is that the removal of the capping of the rates and now the banks were free to lend with whatever they, with that aspect of capping was removed. So there was introduction of the risk-based model. So what risk-based model means is you have, or how they are, most of them are trying to price it from our engagements with them. You have your cost of fund, you add your operating expenses, this is percentage form, then you add your margin, and then you add the risk profile that you're giving that particular borrower. So with that, can you come up with your risk-based model? So for equity, they had said it's around, I think, 13 to 18%. So that means if you're a good borrower, they'll give you at around 13%. If you are say, a bad borrower, then you're going to get it at around 18%. So basically that's what we call the risk-based model. So it's whereby we are evaluating the risk of a borrower on a case or case basis. So if it's Eric who has come to borrow, if it's Solomon who has come to borrow a loan, then you're going to look at them on a case-by-case basis and apply those metrics to come up with a, an appropriate rate for them to, which you can lend to them. And I think that is what was meant to open up the, the taps on the loans that are supposed to be issued out by banks. All right. Do you have something to add there? And also, there's one of our listeners who's asking about the issue of the fair value losses. I think Equity Bank was around 50 billion. They had reduced it, I think, for 15 billion within the quarter. And also, I saw another bank that had fair value losses was, I think, I&M Bank. I wanted to double click on that. I think Kronaki is having issues connecting. So Solomon, we can come back to you. In terms of fair value losses, they're below the net income part of the income statement. So people don't pay attention to it as much. 
a lot of people pay attention to net profits and how the profits are doing. And I think that's usually what's the headline item in Business Daily or in some of these newspapers. But like you want to dig a bit deeper and see if the net profit being driven more by a reduction, maybe in provisions or something like that. So like you want to see where does this profit actually come from? Are they growing net interest income or something like that? For I&M Bank and Equity Bank, the fair value losses were below the line item, which is net income. So they're in the comprehensive income part. And I can tell you for free, very few people pay attention to that. So perhaps you can give a bit of an example. Why is the fair value losses below the net profit and why should it, people pay attention to them? I think Corona is back. So. Yeah, okay. I agree with you in terms of paying attention to that. Most investors don't. For them, they take with what is reported is a news. Equity, maybe Equity Group has made you know, 20% profit and all that. But you're supposed to pay attention to it. You're looking at the operations of the bank, their, their interest income, the interest expenses, their provisioning, their expenses and all those. Then they have their profit before tax, the tax and the profit after tax. So for most of us, even the normal investors tend to close it at that. But then the banks have to adjust their profits based on the provisions they're going to make for any losses they foresee incurring in the holdings they have for government securities. So if you look at equity, I&M, and I think also DT, there were some couple of banks who had, I think, more than 5 billion in terms of the losses, but equity was the largest. Then I&M was around, I think, 5 billion. There was another bank that had also a high amount of exposure in terms of the fair value losses at the provision. The reason why it comes here after that is because it's an expectation that we have made this loss when we value the bonds or the government securities that we have. So it doesn't happen because it becomes, uh, once they sell those bonds and make the loss, it will be reported as ERS losses, but it hasn't happened. So that's why it's been put below the profit after tax as, as unrealized losses or sometimes gains from the holdings that they have. So it, 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 it appears after the PATs because it's kind of a provision on if they were to sell off those bonds, then would make this loss or this profit. All right, Ronald. I agree. You should pay attention to those, partly because ultimately what you're trying to see is if the bank is creating value. And one way of looking at that is to see how the shareholder equity or the book value is growing. And that takes into consideration not just the profits that the bank makes, but the other comprehensive income or loss that comes below the profit line. With that being said, this mark-to-market loss only becomes problematic if, like Solomon said, they are intending to sell these securities, and that's when it becomes a realized loss. In equities case, like Solomon mentioned, majority of the losses are emanating from the Eurobond portfolio, and when you speak to management, they intend to hold to maturity. So if that were to happen, then the effective return uh, on that investment through the cycle of its duration is the yield that, that they bought the security at. So if they bought the euro bond at 7 8% and they hold the maturity, then it doesn't matter that they've crystallized this loss because what will now happen going forward is that going forward, they'll, the yield that they'll earn from this portfolio will be higher. So they've recorded, they've brought forward the loss, but going forward, the yield that they'll be booking on, on the P&Ls from the next quarter will be around 12 to 14%. So like I said, over the lifetime of that security, the average yield that they'll earn is the yield that they initially invested at, which is 7 or 8%. So this loss only becomes a problem if they sell. 
And if you look at equity bank's balance sheet, for now, there's no reason to sell. A, a significant proportion of this Eurobond portfolio is coming from the DRC balance sheet. On the DRC balance sheet, the loans to assets ratio is fairly low. And there are a lot of the assets still sit in cash or cash equivalents. And so they, they, they still have a lot of liquidity on their balance sheet and there's no particular reason to sell those bonds. Now, the, the other, I guess, issue for them, it's all well and good to say that we'll hold these bonds to maturity. But if for whatever reason, Kenya needs to restructure its debt, because we've heard quite a few commentators and there's been quite a lot of concern about Kenya's debt sustainability. If for whatever reason in the next two, four years, Kenya needs to restructure its debt and the bondholders are asked to take haircut or a loss on their holdings, then that becomes a problem because then it means equity has to write down the value of that portfolio to whatever is required. And that again, crystallizes a loss. So as things stand, I don't think it's a problem. I think for now, Kenya's debt still remains sustainable and uh, assuming equity bank holds to maturity, then it's fine. But if for whatever reason, Kenya needs to restructure its debt, then it could become problematic. All right. So still on the discussion on the map to market losses. If you go to the bank balance sheet, the government securities are divided into two. And this is what Ronak was talking about, the holding held to maturity and available for sale. The same observation, I've seen it in the insurance reports. So you find that some of the insurance have also reported mark-to-market losses. But the difference between the mark-to-market losses in insurance and in the bank is the insurance companies have a leeway to hold to maturity for the bond. So they can hold the bond with the anticipation that the yields will go down and they're going to come have a mark-to-market gain. Unlike for banks, whereby their kind of cash flow needs are quite urgent, they might be called to liquidate some of the bonds even before maturity. So I find most of their bonds are usually held in the available for sale segment rather than held to maturity for most insurance companies. All right. I wanted to see if there are any questions which haven't answered, but I don't see anyone who's just sending DMs. I suspect we're either doing very well in terms of explaining. But I know there are a couple of people who are interested or new to investing. I wanted to ask maybe Solomon and then Rona can chip in. I, I know you're not supposed to give investment advice and all, but what are the banks which are more consistent in terms of giving out dividends with a good dividend yield that maybe an investor who's listening we should actually take a look at and maybe examine a bit more if they want to maybe invest in that. So in terms of dividend payments, I know like only two of the eight or nine banks that we follow for, who are, which are listed in Kenya, pay dividends. But generally, from a general perspective, what are some of the banks that are good in terms of dividend payments that you've seen? Maybe Solomon? I would say all of them, except HF. <laughs> all of them. Because if you look at Stanchart, if, if you look at the dividend yield banking around the month of May, mid-April, the top-ranked bank, they had a dividend per share of 19 shillings. By then it was trading, uh, it was quite high because uh, it went all the way to around 146, but maybe the mid-range of 105, it was a yield, a dividend yield of around 14%. Then there was Tanvik, it had around 11%. Then we had NCBA and NCBA have actually proven to maintain the same this year by being one of the few that gave an interim dividend of two shillings. And then in terms of consistency, KCB equity, you know, always giving out two to three shillings every year, apart from the 2020. So I feel like most banks are good for dividend returns. And of course, there is the Bank of Kigali, which is uh, listed in Kenya, but trading in Rwanda. 
So it's also a good candidate for dividends. Yeah. <clears throat> Nothing much to add there. Stanchart historically have been a dip, big dividend payer. And as we discussed earlier, their growth plans are relatively conservative. So it seems like they can sustain that. Likewise, Zanbic has been pre- paying some pretty significant dividends. I think partly that was because they were trying to op- optimize their capital structure, but also because of the improving uh, profits. And from the four banks I cover, I guess the one that's been the most consistent and has probably the highest yield amongst the four banks I cover is, uh, is Co-op. You could almost call it the one bob bank because since their IPO in 2008, they've almost been paying a consistent dividend of one shilling per share, which translates to a pretty significant yield given where the current share price is. KCB and equity, decent dividend pairs, but I would say from a sort of dividend policy perspective, they've been a bit all, all over the place the last two, three years. Equity in particular, as we know, didn't pay a dividend for two years, 2020 and 2021, but it seems like now that they, they have a more defined dividend policy of paying from anywhere between 30 to 50%. Likewise, historically, KCB used to pay dividends of around three shillings, but that's become a bit more volatile recently given the volatility of the profits and also their expansionary strategy. All right. Yeah, I wanted to add something on dividends in terms of expectations for FY21. From my own observation is that KCB might be under pressure to not maintain the same dividend given that the need urgent cash to finish the TMB acquisition. So we might expect some reduced dividends. Their ownership by the government then means that they're highly likely to pay dividends because maybe the government wants some money here and there in terms of dividend payments. So that means it might pay a shilling or two. But for me, I foresee a reduced dividend because of that urgent cash to finish the TMB deal. And then for equity, if your value losses situation doesn't improve, I might see a situation whereby the regulator might require them to set aside some provisioning to cover for that. So that could be something to observe for the, those two in terms of dividend expectations for FY21 or even for Q3. I slightly back to differ. I think both banks are fairly well capitalized. KCB with their TMB acquisition, roughly going to be about $100 million and they've got sufficient capital to cover for that. And like you mentioned, given the government's needs for ca- need for cash, I'd be very surprised if you see a meaningful cut in the dividends. Likewise, equity, despite the fair value loss, their capital adequacy ratio actually increased in the first half to around 20%. The regulatory minimum is 14.5%. Their ROE is close to 30%. So they're very well capitalized. Like I said, they have a very well-defined dividend policy of 30 to 50%, which the management have committed to. And I'd be surprised if that renege on that. If anything, the payout ratio last year was 30%. And given where the profits are and capital is for this year, uh, I'm expecting an increase. A quick one though about DTB. I think uh, it was one of the lowest payout ratios around, but fairly well capitalized. Any reason why they don't pay higher dividends or maybe perspective on that? I haven't followed them closely for a while now. I used to cover them at my previous role. And yeah, that was one of my complaints back then as well. I couldn't understand why they're so stingy in paying the dividends. Like you mentioned, the capital adequacy ratio is high. Up until the first half of this year, their loan growth was also not very strong. So I couldn't see any reason why they don't pay a high dividend. The one guesstimate I would make is maybe they have significant underlying NPL issues, which they're not being extremely forthcoming about. Diamond Trust of all the banks, if you look at it over the last six or seven years in terms of their NPLs and provisioning levels, probably 
one of the highest, if not the highest on average over the last five, six years. And that maybe points to underlying NPL issues, the, the extent of that problem, which we are not fully aware about. All right. On the DTB question, I agree with Fonat. There seems to be some uh, level of opacity in terms of uh, the provisioning or the, the asset quality. And if you also look at DTB, they are one of the lowest. It's a historical thing. It's not a COVID thing or a recent one. It's a historical. They have one of the lowest ROEs when their peers are in the mid-teens and above 20, mid-20s. For them, they are actually trading at around 30, 10 or around 10%. So I feel like they're moving in the opposite of the rest of the peers because apart from NCBA, they are also the other bank that is trying to open physical branches when everybody else is closing. And they are also lagging behind in terms of digital lending. Everybody else seems to have caught up with digital lending. And for them, they are still trying to see how they can implement. So I feel largely it's because it goes back to their entry issues, but they haven't been fully outright with. Interesting. I think because last year, it was an analysis someone did, and I think they actually do keep low provisions during the first three quarters of the year. And then at the end of the year, they actually raise the provisions. And there's an analysis, I saw something like that and try and retrieve it for next time. There's a question here from Tony. He's talking about your view of the performance of government-owned banks like Consolidated and how to change their fortunes. And is it time to seriously consider privatizing some of these banks that are owned by government? Just general perspectives on that. Solomon, maybe you follow these banks a lot more? Well, I haven't followed the non-listed banks, maybe apart from Family Bank. For the rest, I can't really conclusively talk about their performance. I haven't checked. But in terms of privatization and consolidation, from my observation in Kingdom and uh, National Bank, since they were taken over by COP and KCB respectively, they have come back to profitability and you can see some sense in terms of their performance. Maybe the, the best way out for them, my first recommendation would be consolidation among tier three banks. Mostly because if you look at the tier ones, the large ones, it is, if you tell them to look at consolidated bank and development bank, and maybe without mentioning any other bank, if you tell them to look at that, then those small banks are not giving them value. And if anything, maybe they are adding to their poor asset quality. Unless it's a forced marriage or a brother help your sister, like what we saw with NBT and KCB. I do not see the large banks coming to their rescue. So maybe the best thing for them is to consolidate all those small tier three government banks into one, maybe into a bank and try and see how it can be developed and into a larger bank or even sold to maybe an incoming foreigner who wants to have a buy of the Kenyan market. Another quick one from John here. It seems to be a trend among Kenyan banks that are not doing so well, especially in South Sudan and Tanzania. Any comments on that? Is this really unique to just banks? I think <laughs> of the history of Kenyan corporates expanding into Tanzania, we have seen consistently poor performance. EABL for a very long time struggled, but only after the acquisition they made a few years ago, they were able to gain some scale. And only now we're starting to see some meaningful turnaround in their operations and contribution to profitability. The other firms that have expanded there, be the, the cement firms, have done well. And uh, banks have historically done poorly. And like I said, I think it's more, I guess, because of the cultural factors rather than a poor operating environment. Because from an environmental perspective, as I referenced earlier, if you look at the operating performance of CRDB and NMB, they seem to be doing relatively well. 
in particular, zoning in on the Kenyan banks, NCBA is loss making. Equity is now profitable, but up until last year, they were also loss making. KCB is profitable, but again, the profit contribution has remained relatively modest, although they've been there for almost 20 years. The problem is scale. Like we see in Kenya and what I see across the frontier market spaces, for banks to churn out reasonably high ROEs, they need to achieve scale. And for you to achieve scale, firstly, you need to commit much more capital. From what I see for NCBA, for KCB, for equity, the amount of capital they've committed hasn't been significant enough for them to achieve any meaningful scale. So that's number one. And the second part from a bank-specific perspective is the two banks that I keep referencing. They have been very strong within the market and it's been difficult to dislodge them. I think between those two banks, they control 70 to 80% of total market share. So there's very little market share for the other banks to play with. And yeah, in that environment, it's been difficult for them to achieve scale, which again means it's difficult to achieve reasonably high ROEs. Could that change? Maybe as we're seeing the adoption of digital technologies that may turn around their fortunes. But there again, I'm not that optimistic because at the same time, we're seeing the Tanzanian banks roll out their own digital products and they're gaining good traction on that as well. So Tanzania, I think, in general, will continue to remain a tough market for the Kenyans. Jeffsa here is asking NCBA has higher provisions, I think, in terms of totals than both KCB and equity, despite having almost a third of their book in terms of loans. What could be the reason? Again, don't follow them closely. But from what the snapshot I saw, as Solomon mentioned there, NPLs were lower on a year-on-year on a Q&Q basis, but like you mentioned, provisions were higher. So what seems to be happening is that the bank is improving its NPL cover. Typically what happens when you make provisions for an NPL is you make some assumptions about the future recovery or residual cash flows that you get from a loan, be it from the collateral or from restructuring. But as the process evolves, you maybe come to the realization that you may be being too optimistic on the residual cash flows and therefore you have to top up your NPL cover. And that, I think, is what's happening at NCBA. And arguably, that's what's happening, what we're seeing at Barclays as well. Again, Solomon mentioned their NPLs are in the single digits, which is great, but yeah, their cost of risk still are in excess of 2%, which again seems to suggest that they're trying to boost the NPL cover um, because they're not optimistic about the underlying recoveries. All right. Uh, any closing thoughts now in terms of banks in general, outlook for second half of the year in all? One of the significant rules that uh, Solomon raised is about the elections, of course. On Monday, we get the ruling and I think reactions to that, if anything, if the response of the Eurobond yields to the past, uh, when they filed the, the Supreme Court petition, uh, the yield bonds spiked a little bit. Uh, so you get the feeling that voters are watching closely how the Kenyan election is going to unfold. So either way, whoever wins, we see a country that has a significant level of debt to run at the end of the day, there's need to set up policies for the next five years. So any perspectives or anything that you're looking out for, generally for banks as you head into the second half of the year, maybe we can start with Ronak and then Solomon. Yeah, like I said, the key will be what happens on Monday with the Supreme Court ruling. But generally, the messaging from management teams have been that irrespective of the decision. They are seeing increasing credit appetite on the ground. And so the momentum that we have seen in the first half as a reference 
Loan growth is now at a five or six year high, around the 10 to 12% mark. It seems like they're quite confident that they can achieve that. So my key in the third quarter will be two things. It'll be interesting to see if they can maintain their loan growth momentum. And the second issue, obviously, is on NPLs. We have consistently been surprised negatively on NPLs the last three or four years. The messaging from banks, particularly from KCB, is that they are at a peak and we should start to see improvement from 3Q. So again, it'd be, it would be nice to see that come through finally. On asset quality, of course, you have to consider the aspect of elections, but I'm keen on asset quality because I feel like the story we get from learning meat management and what is being reported is quite positive. So I'm keeping an eye on asset quality for most of the banks, most, more specific KCB. And I'm also looking at the provisioning because there is a feeling of increased risk, but then you know, provisioning is reducing and the loans are coming up. So I'm also keeping an eye on that. I'm also keeping an eye on the unfunded income. It's something I've been interested in the last few reporting cycles because the banks have found uh, some interesting way of making money. Taking the case in point, the uh, FX trading income in the half year results for most banks there was a close to 100% gain for almost all of them. So that means the banks are taking advantage of the dollar shortage and the widening spreads between Mobile and Ask and the deviation from the CBK quoted rate. So I'm also keeping an eye on that to see how it's going to perform at the end of the year, keeping in mind that also our currency is taking a beating against the US dollar. So I'm also keeping an eye on dividends because that's a question I usually get from most of my clients, most of my investors. How much dividend do you expect them to pay and all that? So I'm also keeping an eye on if maybe all the listed counters can maintain their dividend payment. But oh, what no. I would say for any investor right now, it's a bias market for the banking counter. Most of them are yeah. like five year old. Right. Do you share the same sentiment, Ronak? Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very good point. I think that generally the tone of this conversation has been negative. We've talked about NPLs, we've talked about mark to market losses and all these issues. But broadly, if I look at the Kenyan banks within the frontier context, despite all the issues that they have, when you look at it from an ROE perspective, the Kenyan banks ROEs over the last few years have been around the 20% level. And we're starting to see that now move back up towards the 25% level, if not higher. So within the frontier context, you know, Kenyan banks are the most profitable uh, in terms of ROE. and Assuming the base case scenario is we get a peaceful conclusion to the elections uh, and there's no significant global shock from where we are right now, then in that context, in that environment, the Kenyan banks are trading at extremely favorable multiples. I mean, the only bank that's trading above book value is equity at 1.2 times. And that's also partly because of the mark to market loss, because prior to that, they were also trading below book value. But taking equity apart, all the other banks are trading at below book book value, which is very attractive given, like I, like I mentioned, the ROEs are now closer to 20%, if not higher. My cost of equity estimate is around 16 to 17%. So despite all the issues, they continue to create value for shareholders, which is positive. And the final point, as Solomon was mentioning earlier, is we do expect these banks to continue paying significant dividends. The dividend yields range anywhere between 5 to 8%. And not quite as, as attractive as what the T-bill rates are offering, 
But again, when you balance that off, when you combine that with the potential upside on share price, given the current valuation, I think the Kenyan banks make a pretty compelling investment case. All right. I think we should end there now. Any closing thoughts from either of you as we head out for the weekend and the way for the ruling on Monday? No, look, well, I guess one area we haven't really covered in much detail is on the digital side. We talked about the digital loans, but it's also quite interesting to see what the likes of CBA, KCB and equity are doing on their merchant payments, equity with its equity payment, KCB with Luma and NCBA with their super app as well. So it'd be interesting to see how that develops and if they can provide any effective competition finally for Safaricom. And if that does, then we see further potential upside for this banks. But yeah, not much to add otherwise. What are you guys reading currently in terms of books and recommendations that you have made for the listeners? What are you reading? Well, I'm reading about a book about the rework, the, the whole issue around rework and how that whole fiasco unfolded. Oh, okay. I mean, rework is quite a story. It's incredible that the founder actually just raised a significant sum of money from investors like a week or so. It points to some issues there in terms of, you know, discrimination in the markets. Solomon? Uh, currently, I'm reading the, A Team of Rivals. It's a book about Abraham Lincoln and his journey to presidency. Quite interesting tips on once he got to presidency, he appointed his rivals to cabinet. So it's a quite interesting take on leadership and how to deal with competition. All right. Thank you so much all for joining us.